Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters in the past. Now today, we're going to go back over half a millennium to a vow that was made by a man in a storm. Let me read the account written by a noted historian. On a sultry day in July of the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Staudernheim. He was a young man, short but sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly, there was a shower, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning rived the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried out in terror, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. The man who thus called upon a saint was later to repudiate the cult of the saints. He who vowed to become a monk was later to renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of medieval Catholicism. A devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify the popes with Antichrist. For this young man was Martin Luther. Those are the words of Roland Bainton in his great biography, Here I Stand. And he's talking about one of the most significant figures in all of church history, Martin Luther. We're going to talk today briefly about Martin Luther. We don't have a lot of time. And my purpose here is to just spark your interest to greater study of this great man and his incredible life. A few years ago, I traveled with my son Calvin to visit the Luther sites in the Lutherstadt in eastern Germany. That means the Luther state or the Luther region is what it's called in eastern Germany. We went to Eisleben, where Luther was both born and happened amazingly to die as well. Uh, sometimes people are born and die in the same town, but not somebody as well-traveled as Luther. It just so happened that he was there when he died. And as we traveled around in that area, we noted some things. Of course, there in Eisleben, there was a big statue erected to Martin Luther, but every town and city we went to in that entire region, there was a statue of Martin Luther. Luther is seen in that region not only, it seems, as a spiritual leader, but somewhat as even the father of the German nation in some respects, a little bit like a George Washington figure. But for me personally, as a Christian, Martin Luther was the human instrument in the hands of Almighty God to bring about the greatest and most significant revival in the history of the Christian church. I really believe the Reformation, what we generally call the Reformation, was a work of revival of the Holy Spirit bringing people back to biblical Christianity. Luther's courage, his powerful commitment to the Reformation ideals embodied in the five solas changed the course of history. Now the five solas, so-called, are so-called because of the theological writing and debating that went on in those days. All of it occurred in Latin, in the Latin language. And the Latin word sola means alone. So the five solas summarized what Luther and the other leaders of the Reformation wanted to see changed in the Roman Catholic Church and in its doctrines. Sola gratia 
is by grace alone. Sola Scriptura is by Scripture alone. Sola Fide is by faith alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Those five solas really do summarize what the Reformation was all about theologically. These are the Reformation's guiding principles. They all have to do primarily with the salvation of sinners. How a sinner can stand forgiven and reconciled in the sight of an infinitely holy God. The central cry of the desperate soul was made by the Philippian jailer to Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? There is no more important question that's in front of any sinner. How can we spend eternity in heaven and not in hell? Before Luther, the medieval Roman Catholic Church taught a doctrine of personal salvation that was corrupt and unbiblical. What Luther and the other reformers did was to go back to the Bible alone and find the central doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. In other words, that sinners are forgiven. They are made righteous in the sight of God by faith in Christ alone and not by works. And this was the greatest revival of true Christianity in the 20 centuries of the Christian church. In order to kind of buttress that statement, we need to understand medieval Roman Catholicism. At that time, we have an idea of Christendom, which is the ironclad welding to some degree of church and state. And we don't need to go into all the details of how the church and the state were really welded together and there was absolutely no separation of church and state and how this tended to have a corrupting influence on the church and its leaders. The papacy, the Bishop of Rome, eventually was called the Pope and then the Pope rose to such prominence in uh, Western Europe that he was able to just dominate political life and the life of economics in every respect. Kings would literally come on their knees to the Pope seeking forgiveness or seeking his blessing on certain things that he wanted to do. And what this resulted in was a very worldly uh, papacy in which popes uh, were among the wealthiest men on earth and were esteemed and revered like emperors. And uh, Actually, Pope Julius, in the years, uh, early years of Luther's life, uh, had a golden set of armor, and he would ride into battle uh, with a golden, wearing golden armor. This is not an image that we have of a pastor or of, or of any kind of a, a godly leader, but this was the papacy. Uh, along with the corruption of the papacy, we have the problems of the, of the people, the laity. They were terribly ignorant. They were generally unconverted and superstitious. Uh, there were mass conversions in the centuries that preceded the Reformation, and so huge populations, uh, populations of entire states or regions would be called or deemed Christian, and they would be baptized simultaneously, all of them, in a river, and they, they had no idea what the gospel was. They were illiterate, and no one could teach them. Their priests were not much better educated than they were. Furthermore, life in medieval Europe was usually brutish and brief, it was very harsh. Middle-class Americans live at, at a level of physical comfort and luxury that emperors even and kings of the Middle Ages could scarcely dream of. Indoor plumbing, uh, medicine, dentistry, clean and abundant food, central air conditioning and heating, heated showers. Think about it, would you rather live in... in maybe a humble middle-class American home or in some big cold stone castle in northern Scotland in the year 1350. It's pretty obvious which of those two would be a more comfortable life. 
for the for medieval peasantry, it was overwhelmingly brutish and, and harsh and short. There was a 60% infant mortality rate. Terrors and effects of the plague, bubonic plague, were constantly around them. For example, in Strasbourg, 16,000 out of a population of 25,000 fell from the plague in one year around the time of Luther's life. That's just overwhelming death. And so death was just imminent all the time. People just expected death to come to their family or even to themselves at any moment. Beyond this, the infrastructure for travel and commerce was rudimentary, so a local bad harvest or flood could drive prices for all food up as high as double what they'd been before. It was a difficult life. Uh, vacillating economic conditions forced countless numbers of people to beg. Sometimes there were so many beggars, also mentally disabled people, maimed, crippled, diseased, homeless, that authorities would round them up and force them in, into a neighboring territory, almost like a mass exodus of refugees. Crime was rampant and authorities lacked resources to check it adequately. You, could, you took your life in your hands if you just traveled on the road for any length of time, especially at night. People were ignorant also of the Bible. The Mass was spoken in Latin. Priests themselves were very poorly trained theologically. And as the Mass was being spoken in Latin, almost no one there understood what was said. They were there under kind of spiritual obligation because that's how they earned their salvation, by the sacramental life of the church, by taking part in the, in the Mass, the Lord's Supper. But the words that were spoken were incomprehensible to them. As a matter of fact, the priest would lift up the, the bread and at the moment of transubstantiation, so they believed, when the bread was changed into the literal body of Christ, the priest would say in Latin, this is my body, uh, which is hocus corpus meum. But it, when, when the people heard it, it turned into literally hocus pocus. It was just magic words that meant nothing to them. They did not understand uh, what was being taught. And in the theology of medieval Catholicism, they didn't need to understand. They just needed to be there. It's kind of like being out in the, in the field gets you uh, tanned skin, whether you understand what's happening or not. There's just an influence that comes on you. And so they believe you just need to be there, be baptized as an infant, go to Mass, say your confessions, do the sacraments, and then when you die, you'll almost certainly uh, go to purgatory. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, Roland Baton also talked about the pagan ideas and the, the um, superstitions and the supernatural worldview that many German peasants have. He said, for German pe peasants, the woods and winds and water were peopled by elves, gnomes, fairies, mermen and mermaids, sprites and witches. Sinister spirits would release storms, floods and pestilence, and would seduce mankind to sin and melancholia. Luther's mother believed that they played such minor pranks as stealing eggs, milk, and butter. So this is kind of his worldview. Luther himself carried these beliefs in some form to the day he died. Luther said this, Many regions are inhabited by devils. Prussia is full of them, and Lapland full of witches. In my native country, on the top of a high mountain called the Pubelsberg, is a lake into which if a stone be thrown, a tempest will arise over the whole region because the waters are the abode of captive demons. Luther wrote that. Well, at the center of this, as I mentioned, is a defective Catholic theology of salvation. Catholic theology only exacerbated these fears. The medieval hierarchical structure made the lord of the manor in your region a figure so high you only saw him very rarely. You never saw the prince of your country. 
and the Holy Roman Emperor was untouchably high. Peasants had no access in, in this hierarchical structure. Well, how much more dreadful then did Christ appear, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, depicted in cathedrals and paintings with artwork as judge of the living and the dead, sitting dreadful on a rainbow, with scores of the damned being thrown into hell at his word. They could see the pictures on the, in the stained glass and, the, and that were painted. They, they at least got that image. Commonly, medieval troops would come into uh, German towns and do a passion play designed to stimulate the fear of eternal judgment and respect for the Catholic Church and its leaders. Luther's whole life, he was tormented by anxieties, terrors, doubts, attacks, and melancholy. The greatest fear, of course, was that he would lose his soul, that he would be eternally condemned to hell. Escaping purgatory seemed impossible. Only the saints did that. Now, purgatory, very important doctrinal teaching in the Roman Catholic system. It's like hell, only temporary. It's pretty much exactly the same as hell, only it's temporary. You can get out, and you are actually going to get out as, lo as long as you haven't committed a mortal sin. But you're purged from your sin by your own torments, which is very bad theology. The Catholic system was not designed in any way to allay these fears, only to use those fears to cow people into obedience. Salvation from uh, purgatory and from hell was taught as a cooperation between the grace of God and the works of the people. But the people could never do enough to escape purgatory. The common people never could. It was the age of confession as well. People were told that if they died with any unconfessed sin, their time in purgatory would be immeasurably greater. So the people taught, were taught to confess as many sins as they possibly could think of and to go to confession as often as they could. So a so-called good priest would help his people by asking probing questions, such as, have you ever been angry with your spouse? Or do you wish your house were better than your neighbors? Or have you had any lustful thoughts toward women? Things like that. Trying to elicit confessions from their people. Whatever sins the people had committed, they were instructed to do, do penance to help pay for the sin. They were supposed to do specific good works to help pay for the sin. It was an age also of pilgrimages. Shrines were open and people would travel there expecting to get spiritual points with God and work off the penalties for the sins they committed. It was an entire works-based system. Uh, it was also the age of relics, splint splinters from the cross of Christ, bits of bone or pieces of cloth or the personal effects of the saints were considered holy and they're given superstitious saving power. So people would make pilgrimages to shrines where they could kneel down in front of a golden box with crystal uh, where they could look in and see the a bone of a finger or something like that and they would get some points spiritually uh, reducing their time in purgatory. It was also the age of indulgences. Indulgences were written notes, pieces of paper with the Pope's authority uh, which worked to the forgiveness of, of the sins of any person named in the indulgence. Like it was like a certificate, like a diploma, something like that, with the Pope's seal on it. And it was an age of fire and brimstone and constant terror. That was the world that Luther uh, grew up in, and that was the world that Luther ended up changing. Let's talk now about Martin Luther's spiritual pilgrimage to salvation. As we already mentioned, in 1505, as he was en route to the university where he was training to be a lawyer and a, a good, have a good income as uh, a lawyer, he, out of terror for his soul, made a vow to become a monk. He swore that vow to St. Anne, the patron saint of minors. His 
father, Luther's father, was a wealthy miner. And so that was the first thing that came to his mind. Was So you can see the hierarchical system. You're not going to call out to Christ. You can't get to him. But uh, you can call to a saint that might have some access. This is also why the cult of Mary became so popular. Because you can always go to the emperor's mother. She's nicer than the emperor. And she might be able to make uh, intercession for you. And so many saw Mary as a, as a gentle, loving way to get to the terrifying son, Jesus. It's such a terrible view of, of Christ and of Mary and all of that. But he made this this vow to become a monk, and he entered the Augustinian monastery at Erfurt, where he sought to work out his own salvation by endless fastings and prayers and good works. He even made a pilgrimage to filthy Rome, which was extremely disillusioning for him. Um, however, nothing he did could ever allay his terrors of God and of hell. Central to the Catholic system uh, of salvation was do what lies within you. Do what you can. God only measures you by what you are able to do. You do your, your part, and then God will do his part. It's a cooperation. And so this was on Luther's mind in the monastery. Luther said this, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was to be I. All of my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. End quote. So Luther went above and beyond any call of duty in the monastery. He especially wore out his supervising monk, Father Johann Staupitz, with constant confessions. I mean, not having any other work to do except work connected with the monastery, Luther could stop at any time and seek out Father Johann Staupitz and, and seek to confess sin. This he would do three or four times a day. I can imagine Staupitz dreaded the sight of Luther coming around a corner, coming right for him, for yet another time of confession. He would confess even the most minor inclinations of his will or of his, of, of his thoughts or emotions, anything at all, so he could clean his conscience. He lived in constant terror of God. When he said his first Mass, as he was being trained to be a priest, and he said his first Mass, and he was actually holding the bread, the host, and at the moment of transubstantiation, as I mentioned, when he said, this is my body, at that moment, um, actually when he was holding the cup of wine, he, he, and it was being changed into the actual blood of Christ, he was terrified by the words in Latin, the one, the true, the eternal, the living God. And this, this incredible statement of the infinite majesty of God so terrified him that he spilled the wine onto the white tablecloth, and it was, it was a, a very serious blunder, and it was incredibly uh, embarrassing for him. He was ashamed of it. The terror of God and of hell paralyzed uh, Luther, and Staupitz realized, uh, Father Johann Staupitz realized that if he didn't get Luther out of there, he would probably uh, be dead soon. Uh, Staupitz said, Martin, you're making it all too difficult. All you need to do is love God. Luther responded, love God, I hate him. Obviously, that is blasphemy. You can see why. What a terrifying view of God, and there's no way to have access. And so Staupitz knew that Luther had to get out of there, and he sent him off to a place where he could study the Bible and theology. And this saved his soul and his life. Uh, Luther's quest for the forgiveness of his sins took a massive turn when he began studying the Psalms. He came to Psalm 22, which begins with these very well-known words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Luther studied those, these words exactly represented what he was feeling. He was feeling forsaken. 
by Almighty God, the terrors of being forsaken by God. But Luther was well aware that Christ had spoken these words from the cross. This caused Luther to pause and to wonder. Christ had never sinned. He was the perfect son of his father, yet he was forsaken in some mysterious way on the cross. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It led Luther to begin understanding Christ as our substitute, dying in our place. The, Luther, uh, the journey of Luther's understanding was made complete, however, by his careful study of the book of Romans, the greatest, clearest explication of the gospel in the Bible. He came right away, of course, to Romans chapter 1. And in verse 16 and 17, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And here's verse 17, the key. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith for faith, just as it, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther pondered the words, the righteousness of God. Usually those words refer to the terrifying righteousness by which God judges and condemns a sinful world. But here the context was very different. It was a joyful, happy context. Uh, the gospel is good news. It saves people, doesn't condemn them. And so he wondered at the phrase, the righteousness of God. And here are Luther's own words. I hated that word at Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God, which according to the custom and use of all teachers, I had been taught to understand in the philosophical sense with respect to the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I had lived as a monk without reproach, I felt with the most disturbed conscience imaginable that I was a sinner before God. I did not love, indeed I hated, the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously and certainly with great grumbling, I was angry with God and said as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through eternal sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospels threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. But then the understanding came based on his new insights. Luther wrote this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. 
So, Luther said, if you have a true faith in that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will, that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look at his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him properly, but only looks at a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. Now he wrote that in 1545 toward the end of his life when he had realized how much joy he had now in his relationship with God through faith in Christ. A radically different situation from the terrors that he had in the monastery. Well, after that insight, the news had to become public. And it happened step by step by step. It began with an issue that was popular in those days, the sale of indulgences. I already told you what indulgences are. They are pieces of paper with the Pope's official seal. And the Pope uh, commissioned the sale of indulgences throughout Germany to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica, a big church that still stands in Rome today, one of the most famous church buildings in all the world. Well, a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel was a very powerful, effective, you know, fire and brimstone preacher of indulgences in which he would go from town to town in Germany and uh, stimulate people's terrors and fears for their dead relatives, their dead aunts and uncles, dead fathers and mothers, even their dead children, uh, that they could buy their forgiveness and their release from purgatory by the buying of these indulgences. It was a massive moneymaker. But it did not in any way line up with the theological insights that Luther was developing as he studied the Bible more and more carefully. And so, in 1517, uh, on the eve of all saints, Luther spoke his convictions with pen and also hammer blows by fixing on the oaken door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, where Luther was uh, a professor in that city. On that door, public notices were fixed uh, that, that people could read. And he fixed the 95 theses. And this was a standard custom. The theses are propositions for debate. They were written in Latin. And these 95 theses do not show a full theological understanding of justification by faith in all of its details. Luther was still learning. He was still growing in biblical doctrine at this point. But they began a revolution that we know as the Reformation. Unlike most academic theses, these were forged in anger with sharp crisp rhetoric. Luther was a very clear, powerful writer. And shortly after the 95 Theses were posted, printers got hold of the document and spread them all over, published them all over Germany, indeed, eventually all over Europe. Well, the Roman Catholic Church was going to respond and defend their uh, power and their, and their authority, and so they began to fight and to oppose Martin Luther in an ever-increasingly intense battle with him. For example, in the spring of 1518, just a number of months later, Luther went to Heidelberg to defend his view before a large, of, large group of learned Augustinian scholars. And at the Heidelberg Disputation, so-called, Luther brought forth this thesis. The law of God, although the soundest doctrine of life, is not able to bring man to righteousness, but rather stands in the way. So he looks at the law as a condemning accuser and the gospel is that alone which can save us. Luther also attacked free will and the possibility of human works doing in any way uh, 
effective working for the salvation of our sins. Human beings could not satisfy God in any way apart from his free grace. Luther also took on the issue of free will, uh, saying uh, that it only leads to sin. And the concept of doing what lay within you, that cooperation between man and God, simply uh, would fail. If even 1% of our salvation depended on us, we would most certainly be lost. Luther said, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this man, namely Christ, and immediately everything is done. Very strong statements of salvation by grace through faith. Luther also defended his views at the Diet of Augsburg. Now, the word diet means an official gathering of church leaders, uh, leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther's life at this point was gravely in danger. Keep in mind that Jan Hus had been burned at the stake almost exactly 100 years before that for the exact same, almost the exact same views. Well, at the Diet of Augsburg, Luther would not recant his views, and there were several other steps of debate and things that were published and printed and uh, lots of, of assertions made back and forth, but uh, eventually the Pope declared him to be a heretic. Uh, well, it all came to a head at the Diet of Worms. Uh, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, was there. Some of all of the, the greatest leaders in that part of Germany uh, were there. Luther's life was directly threatened, but he came under um, the promise from Charles V of a safe conduct to and from Worms. Now keep in mind, Jan Hus had come also to his final place under a similar promise, and it was treacherously revoked and he was burned at the stake. So Luther knew that his life was directly in danger, but he went anyway. Tremendous courage. And as he got to the Diet of Worms, all of his books were spread out on a table, and the uh, leader of the, uh, of the basically uh, inquisition, I wouldn't call it that, or the interrogation of him, pointed his books and said, do you recant these works or not? Luther looked at all of his books and realized uh, the gravity of the moment and asked for time that evening to pray about it, which is surprising. Uh, but he was granted time, and that night he kind of wrestled through any lasting doubts. The one question is, could he be right and everyone else be wrong? Imagine kind of being on your own at that point, and no one standing with you, and think, is my reading of Scripture sufficient? But in the end, he triumphed by grace, and I think heaven alone will tell us what that evening was like for him wrestling in prayer. But the next day, he, he was in, entirely... Uh, convinced and ready to stand. As he looked at his books, and they went back and forth on, in the debate, finally it got to this point. Luther said these words, Since then your majesty, Charles V, and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am, I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. This is one of the greatest statements ever made in church history. Immediately after making it, Luther raised both arms in triumph and walked out of the hall. Having been promised that safe conduct to and from Varms, he left soon thereafter. And then, amazingly, uh, his protector, Elector Frederick the Wise, um, contrived to have him kidnapped by some highway robbers, but they actually were saving Luther's life because he almost certainly would have been killed. A an edict went out uh, on his head, basically open season on Luther. Any German citizen could have killed Luther with impunity on sight. 
So Elector Frederick the Wise brought Luther to a gloomy old castle, the Wartburg, where he was up in the attic and where he was sequestered away and protected. And there he made the best use of his time. He translated the entire New Testament into lively, energetic German. Some say that Luther's German in the Bible, and he also eventually translated the Old Testament as well, shaped the modern German tongue in ways that are almost incalculable. When it was finally safe for him to do so, he returned to Wittenberg and started to manage and to lead uh, the Reformation by powerful preaching and by the writing of the Word of God by sound theology. His most significant theological writing happened in 1527 in his debate against Erasmus, the Dutch um, humanist who was defending the Roman Catholic side of the debate um, on the question of the freedom of the will, the human will. And Luther wrote his greatest theological writing on the bondage of the will, or free will a slave, in which he argued that only the grace of God can free the will to believe in Christ. Now Luther was by no means a perfect man. He was bold, he was fiery, he was intemperate, sometimes uncharitable to theological opponents. His writing against the Jews are terrible, openly anti-Semitic. However, God used Martin Luther to clear away the corruptions of man-centered, works-based salvation taught by the medieval Roman Catholic Church and pointed to the central doctrine that gives sinners like you and me hope, justification by faith in Christ alone. When Luther died, he said, we are all beggars. This is true. I think about that in light of Jesus' statement beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have nothing we can offer, but only by grace, through faith in Christ, are we saved. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare specific good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for the glory of God in their day, so do the same in yours, by the power of his Spirit, for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.